This is Rocky Atu, and I'm Merlin, and I'm Zinzale, and you're listening to Critics and Code Check. Good morning, another beautiful day here in Brooklyn. It's the springtime. We're all wearing white mysteriously in the studio. Oh. I think that's interesting. What? Lots of good vibes. It's our last episode, so we're so happy to be joining you alive. We made it to this milestone. We're happy you're joining us as well. How are you ladies doing this morning? I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling like we're in formation, which is always really nice because we didn't plan it. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs> I'm feeling good. This weather is great. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just here. Praise the Lord. Oh, yes. Nevin would have made it. Is that what it is? Yes. Nevin, Nevin would have made it. Yeah, Shout out to Marvin Sapps. We're not going to do the harmony? I'm not going to harmonize. No? Okay. I, I don't have a single voice. Shout though. out to Marvin Sapps. I played that on my way here this morning. That's what's so. up. I was listening to Prince when yep. Dubs cried. <laughs> that was my Sunday morning. Same, same type, yeah. type of gospel. Same yes. Gospel. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Then let us know what happened last week in Black Art News. In Black Art News, um, unfortunately, our beloved and other favorite uncle, beloved comedian Charlie Murphy, passed on April 12th. Very yeah. sad day. Unfortunate. Oh, such he was such a young guy too. Yeah. So yeah. funny. Just like naturally funny. Yeah. yeah. You know, come out, you eating a potato salad, you spit it all out because he was so funny. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Like he's who I would want my uncle to be. Because he's so freaking funny. Like you oh, just yes. look at his facial expressions, they exude so much power, but like just make you you having a bad day? Listen to some Charlie Murphy. Can yeah. we listen to some uh, funny a die sketch he did? Yeah. Uh he was playing uh, an athlete, Leroy Smith. Let's see what Charlie was doing on this one. Mind you, he has like, he has like a, a uncle haircut. He has an uncle haircut, you know, really huge mustache and kind of like the horseshoe haircut. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so ball spot in the middle. Uh, and he's playing Leroy Smith. Good evening. I'm Grant Whitaker. The recent announcement that Michael Jordan will be inducted this year into the Basketball Hall of Fame came as a surprise to no one. What was surprising, and some would say outrageous, was the omission of one of basketball's most important and influential contributors, Leroy Smith. Smith is the founder and star of the wildly popular Get Your Basketball On DVD series. He is also credited with being the person responsible for making Michael Jordan the best basketball player of all time. A lot of people know that Michael Jordan was cut from the varsity team, but you say there's more to the story. See, it came down to Mike and I for the final spot on the team. The coach pulled me aside and was like, Leroy, if you don't play varsity, we're going to have to forfeit the season. I was like, hey, well, you know, coach, I'll help you out, but we're going to have to keep an eye on that Jordan kid because he was more or less like baby bird needed me to feed him the word and what happened next i gave him a taste for greatness i showed him what it was like to be great and he remembered what it felt like not to be great and to be fed worms by force by me and jordan would continue to use leroy's name and influence throughout his career 
He would introduce himself to strangers as Leroy Smith. He would check into hotels as Leroy Smith. He even carved his initials into picnic tables as Leroy Smith. Recently, we met Smith at his house, where he gave us a glimpse behind the curtain of America's favorite instructional DVD series, Get Your Basketball On, with Leroy Smith. With the help of his longtime collaborator, Manny Mayik, Smith edits and produces the DVDs right here in his home. Now bring up the flames, though. Now, now go back to me, to my face. That, now that's hot, that's hot. Yeah, I that. You see how wonderful that is? Yeah, look at that. Look so great there. Wait, yeah. Right here, I want you to put in the big one. Shazam! Shazam! Awesome! Awesome! That's my new. Yo, now I'm like, it's not Shazam, it's Shazam. Did you hear? Excuse me, get correct. It's Shazam. Shazam. Oh, we're going to miss you, Charlie Murphy. Thank you so much for the laughs. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for the laughs. We also mm. lost someone else this week. Um, I'm really sad about it. I don't know. Can you feel it? Yeah. Um, amazing painter and pioneer in regards to black portraiture, Barkley Hendricks. Um, yeah, Barkley Hendricks passed on April 18th, and it was, I was really sad. I didn't, I didn't know until you guys told me today, um, yeah. but... He was one of the people that I was looking because I was working in a lot of portraiture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was an inspiration of mine. I'm really sad that he passed. Mm-hmm. He made your uncle look cool and beautiful. Basically, so yeah. swagged out. Just he he really wanted to pay homage to like everyday people, like giving them a platform and a space to be seen and like adorned in some sort of way. And I think like anybody who does that for the people have our hearts. So. Yeah. We say rest in peace, rest in power um, to these giants. Yeah, these wonderful black men that have <sighs> given their lives in service yeah. to the art and the creative imagination. Where would our imaginations be without their contributions? So thankful. Yeah. yeah. So, so thankful. And their influence will continue to radiate. So Definitely. Polo, look at Alpha, our homies. Barclay. <laughs> <Little> <laughs> <animation>. <laughs> yes. Yes. Tell me, what's up on today's episode? What are we going to be getting into? So today I was interested in having a conversation about comedy or, or and even joy, black joy as being defiance or um, revolution in and of itself. Um, thinking about ways that that comes up in visual arts and pop culture and our cartoons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just trying to see, you know, just unpack what laughter has the power to do for us, visually speaking, but also um, thinking about how we overcome a lot of the things that we've endured. So, I know you had a question about laughter, humor, and its role in happiness yeah. and resistance. What was your kind of the question that you thought of to frame how you want to enter the conversation today? So, I was thinking. I guess the best way, because, you know, my questions can get a little away from me, but... I'll just pull your mic away when the dog is like... <laughs> <laughs> no, come back! Slap <laughs> that thing. I'm done. I can't. You're getting too ahead of yourself? I why need have to I never thought of that? Slap <laughs> that mic to oh, gosh. She's being very aggressive. I just want to say that. You talk about me. Oh, gosh. Okay, but I just want to say, what are some examples that you guys have been in a gallery or seen work that that has made you laugh? And and how do you feel about 
in a space that you know oftentimes when we're in these visual art spaces it's very serious it's very uh bourgeois and um it has that intensity i think when we went to um the carrie james marshall exhibit we saw the yeah. comic books together yeah. we were reading we were reading um some of those and we were laughing together so i mean just a just how does comedy and laughter in these spaces when we're having, you know, the experiences that we are, how does that work I think of, yeah. yeah, I think of one of the pieces that made me laugh the most, um, not even the most, because I'm, I'm also easy to, to humor, but one of the pieces that made me laugh and also made me think mm-hmm. was the Valerie Oka piece. Um, it's in French, and it basically reads in French, um, in neon letters, in red, Mm-hmm. You think because I'm black, I can fuck better. Uh-huh. And um, so this piece is neon. It's meant to be displayed on the wall. There's a second piece that has a dinner table mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. that seats about 10 people. And on the dinner table are written different things that people think while they're having dinner. Did I just say the right thing? Yeah. Did they pass yes. me the right fork? Uh, <laughs> and she wrote all of these things uh, on the dinner table with place settings. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Also reminding me mm-hmm. where she had the plates of the vaginas. It was in the Brooklyn Museum. I'll have to include the picture. Is, on the, um, I, think, is that Adrian I think that's Judy Chicago. Yeah. Is that Judy yeah, Chicago? Yeah, Judy yeah. Chicago. Thank yes. you. There was yeah. the plates of the vagina, shaped in the shape of a yeah. vagina at the Brooklyn Museum. It kind of reminded me, the table piece reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was all the things that we think while we're having dinner. Mm-hmm. And the neon lights piece was the one that stuck out to me the most. At the time, I was in an interracial relationship, too, a very complex <laughs> one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, that's, that's some funny shit right there because that's <laughs> actually my life right now. You know what I mean? Um, so it spoke to me on a personal level, mm-hmm. but it also was great to interact with the piece one-on-one. And there are sometimes that I see a particular work, and that Valerie Oka piece did that. I see a particular work, and it's like an inside joke. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't have to explain it to anyone else. And I can have a conversation with the artist one-on-one. Mm-hmm. So that's the first piece that came to mind when I when I looked at the topic you had today. Oh, that's great. So I also, some of my first, like, so over this past week, I've been, since Charlie Murphy's passing, I've been definitely looking over comedy and thinking about ways that has come up for me throughout my life, whether it's watching Martin and listening to Dave Chappelle, his new series on Netflix. I think he has, like, two full-length, like, stand-up comedy skits that he performed. And there was something very casual about it. Yeah, I mean, he also at one point, like, lit a cigarette on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Super casual. Yes, and and when I watched that, I got so excited because shortly afterwards, you know, you have suggestions on Netflix, and it brought me to Richard Pryor, and Richard Pryor lit a cigarette on stage, too. Mm. And so that's when I was like, and, you know, guys, I get excited about seeing these traditions, like seeing how things stack up and that we're you know, in conversation with our people who inspired us. And so seeing Richard Pryor, and then I have a Richard Pryor poster in my office, and it's from Glenn Ligon's exhibition um, at Lubin, or I don't know if I'm saying it right, Augustine's Gallery in Bushwick. Um, But it was basically, he had a show called um, Glenn Ligon, We Need to Wake Up, because that's what time it is. And when I walked into that gallery exhibition, it was the most elegant, most, um, it just turned me upside down in a way because of how, how the work was presented. So there was uh, about four, I think there was, there was just, there was at least four to 
I, I don't, I don't want to give like a random number, but there were different screens um, that were projected on, and you could see um, Richard Pryor. I think he was having. I think one of, it was one of his first stand ups before this stand up. Richard Pryor had a suicide attempt, and it was, was it in the car. Is it? It was. We said it when he was fire? driving. Okay. And they said, yeah, he set himself on fire while freebasing cocaine is what the article that I'm understanding is is saying happened about that time. Um, And then, and so what the projections are showing, it's just this emphasis of either his left hand, his right hand, his groin. um, But it's really looking at him in this performance of the comedy skit, but also looking at his body language. And it brought up a lot of things for me, um, making this intersection between comedy um, body language and the fact that you know this is coming from a body who uh, has its comp- it has its complications where you know there was a suicide attempt, but then also he's the same body is now putting out positivity and and bring t- people together around laughter around that pain. Yeah, it made me think while you're talking too of like his style choice. Yeah, and the things that he chose to wear during this stand up and the way that. Glenn Ligon's exhibition kind of highlights that for me mm-hmm. because he's wearing a black shirt yeah. with an entirely red suit. <laughs> yeah. right? And so that also sends a particular message in my eye, forces me to think about particular things. If I have the context of knowing that this is someone who set themselves on fire, what is the significance of wearing an entirely red suit mm-hmm. right, with a black shirt on the yes. inside? Mm-hmm. What type of message or cues is he sending us um, about his recovery or about how he feels about that suicide attempt and the things that he chose to wear for that evening. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the Glenn Ligon piece focusing and zooming in on that brings that to me even to a four because it's on big screens. Yeah. So it's almost feels like he's larger than life. This, this like mythical figure participating in, in some type of dialogue with me in front of me that I'm almost in awe of. Yeah. So, Rakiati, you mentioned, like, you you mentioned this idea of, like, this mythical figure, right? So, I'm wondering the embodiment of having these this black shirt on and this all-red suit is more of, like, in, in a power move to own what he tried to do to himself. You know what I mean? And, like, just be transparent about it. Not necessarily trying to live up to this idea of, like, I am this comedian, I am larger than life, but, like... This is my. This has been my struggle. This is what I try to do to myself. I'm, but I'm still here, mm-hmm. right? Like red being a symbol clearly of like blood, but also it, it being it flowing, like mm-hmm. these ideas flowing. Mm-hmm. This body being transformed and still being present. Mm-hmm. So it yeah. could also have signified a baptism by fire. Right? Definitely, it could also have signified being born again into a new life, into a new body from this particular experience and being candid and vulnerable about it. Yeah. I'm still here. And I think that's what's exciting about comedy is that there's this ex- astonishing amount of truth that's being able to be shared. Um, things that would make people very uncomfortable in other circumstances. We are able to really sit with these very complicated ideas and feelings and experience that truth in ways that, you know, we don't necessarily permit ourselves out of wanting to be polite. And I think I'm interested in what you guys think about. I know we had so many episodes. We're talking about museum behavior. We're talking about even youthfulness. Um, I think in our last episode with, yeah, with Alexandra Bell, we were talking about 
uh, children being able to be, well, black boys and girls being able to be kids or being seen as kids. How do you guys think about the about that statement that we had last week where there was this question about blackness, youthfulness, and kind of that naivety that makes... Yeah. Because it might, it might help you draw mm-hmm. out um, your point. So are you asking about the naivety of how we perceive black boys and in, in girls in regards to um, being child, existing, first existing, right? And like having this transition of like childhood, teenage to adulthood, this idea of like imagination, is, is that what you were picking up on? Like how do we experience that? I guess what or I was... their naivete. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Them being naive, but then also being in a world where they are there's this projection mm-hmm. onto them about them not being who they who they believe themselves to be and most of the time that being dangerous but i i know i'm saying a lot of th- i kind of threw out a lot but i guess my question then in its simplicity i guess is how do you guys um work through visually the juxtaposition of these very these very tragic experiences that we're having around black life and the need for joy and happiness. I, I think it's really, I think it's really difficult. I think that we're. I don't want to say that we're currently in this state of like desensitization, but we've been in it for a while, right? So, I think it's 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 about choosing to see like the joy within the seams of like the pain. You know what I mean? Like I think mm-hmm. that can be really hard, but I think it's about actively seeking to find those images, that 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 comedic sketch, that that visual art that livens up like the spirit and the soul. Because if you turn on the news, you're not seeing that. You yeah. know what I mean? So I think it's about being actively present within your spirit and trying to seek that out. Because if you don't, yeah. we're out for the kill. <laughs> when you were talking, what came to mind was. There were some black women sometime last year. They were on this Napa Valley wine train. And they were laughing, kikiing, having a great time. It's a wine train. What you doing on a wine train? You drink wine and you laugh and you have fun. And they were kicked off the train because they were supposedly, I guess, being disruptive. It's Napa Valley, so I think it's a bit shishifufu. And like, you know, up there and let's maintain this particular Mm. behavior because we're associated with this type of wealth. Right. And so that type of wealth comes with what I imagine is like butt clenching. Like Mm. you just can't laugh. You can't release any type. <laughs> you just got to squeeze real tight. Hold it in. So everyone so on the Napa Valley train is squeezing real tight. And these black women are letting their belly hang, okay? And they got kicked off the train. And <laughs> they sued. Yes, they did. And they won $11 million. <laughs> right? Snap, snap, and so snap. when you were talking about the role of black joy uh, as it relates to the ways that we're being killed, our children are being killed, it's an absolute necessity of war. In my in my mm-hmm. idea, it's, it's actually one of the tools of war that distracts and disengages the enemy. Yes. Right? Because white supremacists never know what to do with the level of joy that black people express. They look at There's, us like we crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> enough to kick me off the wine train. Yeah. Enough to say, you are disrupting my peace. Please get off the train, right? And it's also something that I would imagine is disturbing because it's like, look at all that you don't have. How dare you come in here and be this happy? 
Mm-hmm. How look at all the things that you have yeah. been denied. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me, my first job. Mm, <laughs> my first job, they I was accused of being overconfident. I never heard it in my life. Mm-hmm. I never interacted with those types of ideas in my life. It was my first nonprofit job, right? And as I've reflected on the assertion, I've come to realize that it was a similar statement that look at all the things that you don't have. How dare you mm. walk up in here and be happy, be ecstatic about the contribution that you can make and be enthusiastic about that. And on top of being enthusiastic, try to transfer that enthusiasm to me, who has all the things that I'm supposed to have to be in this particular position, mm. right? And so in my eyes, it's a, it's a, necess- it's a necessity of this war that we're in to mm-hmm. defeat white supremacy. And I want to make that very clear, that freedom to me is defeating white supremacy. Freedom to me is dismantling the ideas globally that say that whiteness, that fair skin, that white ideals are supreme, are more important than the contributions of others around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so insofar as I can do that, I'm being a resistant person. I'm being a person that is denying what has been given to me, refusing my options. Yes. yes. Right? Um, because what are the options? Depression. Uh, or mourning. Or, I mean, or escaping. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and escaping is, is constant. Yeah, but also just only focusing on what they want you to focus on. Only focusing on the narrative. Oh, I don't, I'm not on the same level or playing field, so I can't do this. So basically, um, just projecting everything that they want you to project onto yourself. So I went to this like Sotheby's talk with this artist. Uh, I'm not going to say the name because I'm just not. But it was a conversation with a street artist who came up from the Bronx and uh, came up kind of in the graffiti time, graffiti era. So did a lot of stuff on trains and is now in the, in the collections of many major museums. And I asked him about the erasure of cultural spaces uh, in the Bronx in particular and also his role in, in understanding how uh, artists are being used to achieve a particular mission, right? How Mm -hmm. artists are being used to achieve the mission of making the Bronx palatable for wealthier communities. Mm -hmm. And he didn't answer me. He talked about other places in the Bronx that he likes to frequent that have uh, positive artistic movements like the Andrew Friedman home, Mm -hmm. like the Bronx Museum, like the Bronx art space. But he didn't answer like what his personal responsibility was. And in that particular regard, I thought like, I have to be so careful about who I even am joyful around because even some people that I think are understanding of my mission and understanding of what the particular agenda is ain't with it, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know? And this is someone who was like really successful, but just not with it and didn't come prepared to answer the question. Mm-hmm. So completely like subverted it, you know? Mm-hmm. So we also have to be careful um, because not everybody that's laughing or smiling with us is of the agenda of freedom, which is what I'm concerned with. Mm-hmm. And also when you find that joy, you better hold on to it and not let anybody steal it. So Yeah. That so, reminds me of Zora and her stand. I know. My that's what boo. I don't feel. She's that's like, what I, I love myself when I'm laughing. When I'm laughing. <laughs> when I'm <laughs> smiling. You know, it's... 
it's so funny because like so this weekend i've been watching this thing on repeat and everything that you're saying rakiatsu has kind of come through full circle for me and so it was um underground harriet tubman she was just sitting down <laughs> having then just popped up yes Mm. Okay. Mm. All right. I don't know it. So. <laughs> I love that show. I don't. So, I'm not watching it. So explain no. to me. Okay. So I'll explain to you. So this episode, episode six, I believe, it's um, Harriet Tubman is just sitting on a stage with a carriage behind her, a bunch of. Yeah. She's around all these, you know, signs, these advertisements about selling. She's on the same stage as as um these these objects, carriages, um So this is podiums. set in this is set in her time, her period. Her period. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um giving a she's just talking and there's an audience of people who consider themselves abolitionists. Yeah. And she's telling them like in order for you to I know you I mean you see me here and you're wanting to hear this story about me doing mm-hmm. the amazing, all these things that you imagined, the people, you know, kind of these myths that people made about Harriet Tubman. But she was just really trying to be plain about, you know, in order for you to understand anything that I'm here trying to fight for, you need to understand the horrors of slavery. Yeah. And she goes into, and it's just the most amazing performance by Isha Hines. Mm-hmm. Like she's... I I hope she wins some kind of award yeah. for this because I was I cried a couple times watching. I told you I watched this thing about six times, but she was. But to get to the point, she was explaining that when she met um, John Brown, she refers to him as Captain in um, her, in her speech. But she was basically saying that she couldn't understand why this white man was really for this cause, that he was willing to risk his life to end slavery. But she later went into describing the ways that she understood slavery as war mm-hmm. um, and that the rape that was happening, the oppression was all things related to war, but it was being swept under the rug to be believed as normal, that this was the way of life because they're mm-hmm. less than human. This is how things are. We are superior. In order to fight, the freedom fight is one that requires for you to constantly your role as abolitionists and be with me in this fight, you need to understand the horrors of slavery. Yes. And so when she describes her experience as being given a broom and sweeping mm-hmm. and just being hit with a rawhide by her, um, by her master, by her master's wife. I No, I think she had just arrived at this woman's house and that became her new master. I believe. I believe, okay. I believe. So yeah. So her she was hit a couple of times and, yeah. and in every hit, she made sure that she didn't cry out because she felt like that act of defiance was yes. her freedom. Um, yeah. She wasn't going to give her the ability to see her at her lowest point, which is clearly yeah. this woman is keep telling her do it over again. I think she said it like at least five, seven times. Right. Yeah. And, but, but later she was, she was told that, thing that was that was exciting about this episode was that she was able to someone took pity on her and told her what she was doing wrong while she was sweeping and so she would she would sweep but then she would quickly dust afterwards and so all of her work was being undone Mm -hmm. and so she was talking about kind of being in she was she was making that making that comparison to her fight where you know she would believe that by I, I think what she was saying was like she's talking about this 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 quest for freedom, right? And like once she felt like she goes into this other example of how I think she had like a taste of sugar and like 
yeah. or something like that. And she ran. And she's like, that was the first time she ever felt free. Once she realized what she was fighting for, she knew that she could never go back on the other side of like being compliant and not being defiant. So her form of resistance was, you're not going to see me at this point of... Um, I got it. <laughs> she was making this complete. She was saying, as abolitionists, you can't get caught up in being about the theory and not putting in the action. The and so she made the that she made that comparison to the sweeping and dusting. You 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 sweep, and I think the sweeping as being the um, theorizing, and then the dusting as the thing that can convolute the action. Mm-hmm. So. That's something that I was really excited about. War, defiance, and comedy as this as this way to kind of, um, what you were saying, refuse your options and arrive at something where you can fully be in the bliss of your your existence. enjoyment and existence and freedom. Or <laughs> and just be the act of like just existing and being as a, as an act of defiance and resistance, right? Because they don't. I'm about to get on DJ Khaled on here. They don't want you to be great. They don't want you. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> don't make that. <laughs> I'm thinking. Y'all gave okay. me a lot to think about because I haven't seen the show before. You so got to watch it. I'm trying to visualize, um, one, the stage that she's on, the people that she's talking to. Mm-hmm. But I'm also trying to understand um, from an outsider's perspective how she's creating the correlation to her pain. And I, and that having the answer or the some of the solutions to how to move forward and what forward movement looks like. And I think a point here that you mentioned that I want us to come back to is the idea of war and defiance and the tools to create an environment where you have enough weaponry um, to fight that battle. Mm-hmm. And I think your assertion at the tail end of that point that comedy is, is a tool of war is a really powerful assertion and it's one that also contextualizes the things that we watch in a completely different way so that when we're watching people like Chappelle or Pryor or Murphy, we're really understanding that what they're doing is not simply entertaining us, but they're using their pain to move us forward to something in a particular way, Yeah. right? Yeah. And, and moving us from the theories of blackness, the theories of colonization, the theories about the pain of slavery to perhaps an action that can lead us toward a future that makes sense. So I'm still pulling all of those yeah. ideas out as you guys were talking. And even just the fact that Get Out came from, you know, yep. the production of Jordan Peele, who's, whose show, who was on, like, who was on the show following Dave Chappelle after he, he um, took his hiatus. I think thinking about just Get Out in and of itself was, okay, was one of those, um, instances where we were i think seeing uh the theory put into action in a comedic way but one that was that was very um poignant so are you gonna we have a few more points i think we have okay a few more minutes then tell me i was thinking a a lot about social location Mm -hmm. and we brought that up a lot on the show and my understanding of it is as the your positionality in society and the way that informs the groups you belong to, the mm-hmm. beliefs you have, and the ideologies that you possess. And I'm, I'm wondering how fame and fortune affects the social location of these black comedians and black, uh, really successful black creatives, whether that changes their location and whether that changes the things that they can be critical of, right? Mm-hmm. And so do comedians, black ones, who've risen to fame and fortune 
with their creative genius and success have a responsibility now to amend the things that they discuss or speak about or critique now that they are in a new positioning. And I'm thinking particularly of Dave Chappelle's critique of, of trans, some trans mm-hmm. jokes that he made, some yeah. jokes about uh, rape that he made that weren't, that weren't received well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if we're putting a different emphasis on it now because he's Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. Has his social location changed? So I think um, you bring up a really good point because the idea of like the social location is that it's a stagnated thing, and that's not true, right? Like we're constantly our social locations are constantly changing depending on the spaces in which we are in and what we're bringing into that space, like what energy we're bringing, what experiences we're bringing. So with Chappelle, I, I think also the question comes down to: Is this man allowed to be? human and to make mistakes and therefore amend them at some point in time in his life the answer is absolutely yes whether it's, it's really in, in in regards to like the audience like we as public as a public spectacle how do we choose to see him based on those comments mm-hmm. or based on his amend, um, amending of like you know what that probably that wasn't cool Right. Mm -hmm. And I think we have this idea of like we want people to grovel and like beg for us to forgive them. And that just might not be the way he does it or anybody does it. But that doesn't mean that he's not he shouldn't be forgiven. So we should. So then in that same vein, we should forgive Kara Walker. I mean, I I just okay. so I want to give I just want to give some context to Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle one. Um, So. Dave Chappelle was basically um, talking about being heartbroken about his hero, somebody he looked up to, Bill Cosby, being found to be a rapist. And he wanted to not believe that. Um, And I think think this joke was, again, for him, working through that, um, the fact that he lost a hero. Mm -hmm. And he was able to to find medicine in, in in his craft. And, I mean, comedians are being very vulnerable all the time. I, I don't necessarily feel like, you know, rape or any kind of abuse is something to to take lightly, but I could understand him working through it in the ways that he knows how. With Carol Walker and, and responsibility now, I think it's in recent articles that I've read about Carol Walker, she's doing she's doing a personal growth. She has to yeah. do this work where she she needs to realize the I guess even where Dave Chappelle realizing that maybe they're not laughing with me, they're laughing at, at me. me. Yeah. I think Carol Walker is probably having that same transition right now in her career where the her work is being she's she rose to fame at twenty five, maybe not for the right reasons, maybe not for reasons that she intended. Mm-hmm. But I, I just want to interject with, I mean, I, you're probably speaking of like the New York Mag article where she's talking about like, I probably didn't have as much empathy at the time when I was creating these things, but also saying like when she was in conversation with her father, I'm just going to do a real quote. Um, I think he basically was saying, um, basically, when are you going to get over this whole race thing, right? And through this recent article that was written by Dor- Doreen St. Felix, she's talking a lot about how she didn't want to just be that black girl, like how she held a lot of resentment like in regards to her childhood. So which which has been informing like her social location. And now at 47, right? 47, mm-hmm. right? She's come to realize how people position those images, um, the silhouettes as well as well as like the sugar baby installation in the public 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 sphere sphere. and like how people are interpreting that as well as more so how she is an artist like what her responsibility is to that Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. all we want to say is like it can come full circle and like 
it's it's up to us whether or not we want to believe it, but it, it can happen. Okay. We'll come back to this. Yeah.